You're listening to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This program is part of an ongoing speaker series in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week, we have two guests, Jessica Chow and Britta Lundin. Before moving to L.A. and becoming primetime TV writers, both Chow and Lundin graduated from the RTF department at the University of Texas at Austin. Chow holds an MFA in fiction writing from the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and she earned her MFA in screenwriting at UT. She's received a number of writing awards, as well as being part of the CBS Diversity Writers Mentoring Program. Among her most recent work, she was a staff writer for the CW romantic dramedy No Tomorrow. Lundine holds an MFA in production from UT. She wrote an award-winning screenplay, Ship It, and a viral feminist web series, A Series of Comebacks. Recently, she's been a staff writer for the CW's Riverdale, a dark adaptation of the Archie comics. Both writers describe their path to Hollywood, the opportunities they've encountered, and the challenges they've seen along the way, particularly in trying to bring new and underrepresented voices, experiences, and stories to television. They spoke on March 30th, 2017 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Cindy McCreary. Welcome, everyone, to another installment of our Media Industry Conversation Speaker Series. I'm Elisa Perrin, one of the co-organizers, along with Cindy McCreary, who will be moderating today. Uh, And just a few thanks. Before we get started, I want to thank Cindy, of course, as well as our grad student team, Laura Felshow, Tim Piper, and Kyle Rather, as well as the RTF faculty and staff for for their support, including our chair, Paul Steckler, Uh, our marketing extraordinaire staff member, Alana Wakeman, and the Moody College of Communication, uh, especially Dean Bernhardt and Associate Dean Mike Wilson. Uh, Giving our promo, be sure to check out our website and our Twitter feed at RTFMIC for upcoming events. We have one more for this year. Uh, Coming on April 27th, Owen Shiflett, who's the Vice President of Development for Sundance Now Documentary Club at AMC Networks will be coming in uh, same time, 3.30 to 4.45, and he's another alum of RTF, along with our guests today. So a little bit about our two guests, uh, Ms. Jessica Chow and Ms. Britta, Hans- Britta-, Britta London, sorry, giving you a new last name. Um, <laughs> First of all, a little bit about Jessica. She received uh, her MFA here in screenwriting uh, a few years back. And then after graduating, moved out to LA first to be an intern at Pillar Segan Shepherd Productions. And then. Dramatic. Uh, <laughs> it's very dramatic. Uh, was accepted into the CBS Diversity Writers Program, mentoring Ooh. program. And most recently has served as a staff writer for the CW series, No Tomorrow. Britta have also received her MFA in RTF, but in production, and has received a claim for uh, a number of her projects, including Ship It, which is a comedy about a gay fan fiction writer, which won the bitch list for the best Bechdel test passing screenplay. Yay. Hey, Bechdel. <laughs> And uh, Britt is actively engaged in media fan communities, so might talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, she also has shot a popular feminist web series called A Series of Comebacks, and is currently a staff writer on the series Riverdale, also on the CW. Yeah. 
Um, so today we have a few things that we want to hear more about, uh, their career trajectories from their time at UT, their roles and responsibilities as TV writers, their views on the current state of television industry and the media industries, and advice for all of you who might want to work in television and the media industries. Uh, but before that, I want to uh, welcome our moderator officially, Cindy McCurry, who many of you might have had as a teacher for screenwriting classes, and also our panelists took classes with her way back when. Way back. <laughs> Their success. <laughs> so please give a warm welcome to Jessica and Britta. Hi, guys. Hello. <laughs> So uh, I'm very excited because uh, my first screenwriting class I taught here, you were in. I was in, in it. In uh, 3ADJ. She wrote a feature, a sci-fi right. feature, which was really cool. I'm glad you remember that. I do remember it. I found it the I other day and everything. I reread it and was like, yeah. it was good. <laughs> it was very good. It's all right. And she took a couple of TV classes. So we go way back, way back. Mm -hmm. And her wife was my babysitter, and I was very sad that she moved. But anyway, <laughs> I so And Jessica, who I've known from the beginning as well, yeah. in several classes, and um, it's very, very proud of both of you guys. No surprise, all of your success. So um, very excited to have you both, and also to have a woman, uh, two women here mm -hmm. is pretty good too. So um, maybe we could just kind of start from your time here at RTF. And um, I mean, you both were interested in TV writing, even though, Britta, you were an MFA production student. You were in the writer's room class with me, and you were really interested in TV back then. So it was no surprise. And Jessica always seemed very interested in television. So I'm excited you guys are doing that. So maybe you could talk about um, you know, what happened when you left? We, you guys were here in the projects you wrote. I know your project you wrote here helped you get into the um, CBS fellowship. Yeah, so um, it's funny, because you said like I was interested in television for a long time, but that's not exactly true. <laughs> uh, the first TV class I ever took was with you. And because I'd gotten a, uh, a grad degree in fiction writing early, like a few years earlier, uh, I realized television was most like novel writing, a lot more like novel writing than writing a feature. And I just, I thought this is something that played to my strengths in terms of, you know, being more character driven and telling a story over an extended period of time. But the two projects I wrote for your class, the spec and the pilot, I used to get into the CBS program. Mm -hmm. So don't just think of this stuff as homework, this can actually help you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Wait, did you want me to go into CBS or? Yeah, it, well, it's funny. I always use her. She wrote a grim spec in the class, which was really great because she used some of her own personal history and life and plugged it into a show that obviously is so different from your own life. And I always try to talk about like how do you implement your own world and your own life into someone else's show. And I thought you did a really good job because you took some folklore and stories that you'd heard growing up and plugged it into the Grimm spec, right? So. Wait, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if you guys watched Grimm or are familiar with it. It's basically the Grimm story tale or fairy tales put into a modern context. And um, okay, 
Thanks for having me. Um, and yeah, that's something that your class really taught me, which was you can't write something unless you are passionate about it and unless you can infuse a bit of yourself in it. Um, and I knew that writing a spec, it seems like it's not going to be very difficult, but it's actually one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, writing specs is not my forte, but the only way to write a spec and truly get into the tone of it and really enjoy doing it is to write about something or come from a story that you know and you're familiar with. So, yeah. Cool. And how about you with TV? With Did you think about TV? I mean, I knew you thought about TV and you wanted to yeah. work in TV. And you know, she went to the CBS program, which we'll talk about. But you started off a little differently. Yeah. Yeah, well, when I was applying to grad schools, I applied to both screenwriting and production programs. And they didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and then ultimately chose this one because I knew that I would take all these production classes and then I could scam my way into a bunch of screenwriting classes, which I did as many as possible. Um, so I felt like I, I could like do it all, you know, mm -hmm. which was very helpful for me when I went out to LA because um, while I was working on my own scripts and um, uh, the scripts I wrote while I was at UT did not get me into any fancy fellowships. <laughs> it was they were not quite at that level yet. I needed to like to cook a little bit more. So I was writing scripts, uh, and then as I was doing that, I had these wonderful marketable skills like shooting and editing and production skills. So I was like doing PA stuff, and I was editing video, and um, I was producing web series, um, one of which uh, went viral, which was called a series of comebacks. Um, and that was just something that me and my friend Claire shot in her backyard one day. And then um, before we know it, it was like getting notes on Tumblr. And then, you know, Bustle was writing about it. And then Huffington Post was writing about it. And then suddenly it was everywhere for like three seconds. And then it was gone. Uh, <laughs> but it was enough to like, you know, at least then it's like people are like, oh, I, I think I saw that. I think that you might be someone real and not like a joke. So that was like <laughs> enough. You know, just a little bit of buzz is good. So all of that was really helpful. And I was glad I. I went to a production program, even though now I'm, uh, I'm being paid 100% of the time as a writer and hope to not have to take any more PA jobs after this. <laughs> if I'm lucky, if Riverdale gets another season, you know. And you, you had said that the script that got you onto Riverdale was a script that was more personal yeah. to you. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, when I, when I finished... UT, I was writing scripts, and I kind of knew uh, I knew what kind of movies I liked and what kind of TV shows I liked, and I knew I wanted to write something female-driven, and I like things that um, um, are a little bit more emotionally complex, and sometimes that have like action and thriller elements to them. Uh, and so I wrote like you know a, a female detective in the oil fields of Texas pilot, which I thought was awesome, and everyone was like, I just don't see you in this at all. Like I don't get what makes this a Brita script. I was like, but she's a badass detective in the oil field in Texas. And they're like, uh, OK. Um, so then eventually, I was like, OK, what do I care about a lot? And um, I, I have a long history in like fan communities and like online fandom. So I decided to write a script that was like, I almost didn't write it because I was like scared to write it. And I, I remember going to bed and being like, Britta, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing You shouldn't be telling people your shit like this. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, no, the fact that you're scared means you have to write it. Um, so I wrote a really personal script about a girl who writes uh, fan fiction about her favorite TV show. In her fan fiction, the characters in the show are gay, but in the real fictional TV show, uh, they're not gay. And so she wins this contest to go to Comic-Con. And uh, she uses the opportunity to confront 
the like cast and showrunners of her favorite show about why they should make the show just as gay as it is in her fan fiction, and they think that's a terrible idea. Um, so, so I I wrote that, and and I um, I thought, well, I'll make this into like a low budget feature, and I'll I'll kickstart ten thousand dollars, and like somehow we'll find a way and we'll do it. Uh, and then uh, that script just started winning awards, and it was quarterfinals at the Nickel. It won the Bitch List. Uh, it won something else called the Assistant List, which was something for the best uh, scripts written by Hollywood assistants, and I was assistant at the time. Uh, and then that's how it got into the hands of an agent, um, and uh, that's when it got into the hands of the people at Riverdale who liked it, and, and now I'm at Riverdale. So it was like this thing where I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna write something that's really personal, and I don't care if everyone hates it, I don't care if people laugh at me, and then everyone was like, oh no, that looks like Britta, I like that. Mm -hmm. That, that like, made me unique mm -hmm. and interesting. And, um, and there's still stuff going on with that script, and I hope to have good news to share about it soon. Oh, very cool, Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and Jessica, you could talk about the CBS program a little bit. And so, did, sure. was it a? Did you use a spec and a pilot to get into that program? Yes. Um, all diversity programs are different, um, not just in terms of what they need, what you need to get in, but also what they offer. Uh, and I can only speak about the CBS program. But I needed a pilot uh, and a spec, and the pilot and spec had to be similar in tone. They don't want you to write a spec of Breaking Bad and then submit a pilot that's similar to. Freaks and Geeks. Um, so after I had submitted those two things while I was, I think it was in my final semester here, moved to LA to do my internship and then got into the CBS Diversity Fellowship Program. Uh, our program ran, ran about six months and it was divided into two distinct sections. The first section was about um, maybe two months and you are assigned mentors from the current or development division of CBS to write an original pilot. And they basically, they don't expect you to actually sell this thing. Uh, it's pretty much a sample to use for your portfolio. But they want you to know what it's like to go through the process of you write a script and you don't get to keep everything you want. You know, it's like, okay, so the executive tells you, well, you know, you need to make this character female. You have to do that. Uh, the character, or the one note I got was, all right, your female character is great, but she's not likable, so make her likable. Make her nice. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, so, and when those, you get those notes, you can't just be like, I'm a writer, uh, you know, these are my babies, I know what I'm doing. It's like, no, if you want to get hired, you have to compromise on these issues. Um, so that was the first few months of the program. And then afterwards, we would meet as a cohort, cohort, there were eight of us in the program. And we would basically work on ourselves. We did very little writing with CBS. It was all about how do you sell yourself? How do you take a meeting? How do you develop, de uh, develop a pitch and deliver that pitch? How do you navigate a writer's room? And um, we also did these terrible things where we would, the CBS program would bring in showrunners and executive producers and all of these really amazing people to talk about their experiences. And at the end of the session, each of those showrunners would do a mock interview with us in front of everyone else in the program. And then afterwards, the other people in the program would dissect your performance. Oh, God. <laughs> brutal. And, um, and the first person who interviewed us was Glenn Geller, who's the head of entertainment at CBS. <laughs> so we're like, oh, just kill me. Um, but those, as terrible as those sessions were, and they were pretty bad because the showrunners would go out of their way to be assholes. <laughs> like, I had had a meeting with a showrunner earlier that week, and I'd mentioned it during my mock interview with Glenn Geller, and he's like, oh my god, I've heard about her, she's such a bitch. <laughs> and he just kept trying to make me to say, she's such a bitch, she's such a bitch. And they try to trap you in these ways. And you just have to figure out a way to 
not tell them to shut up, but also to just be diplomatic and get yourself out of these weird loop, uh, weird like holes. But um, what I got from that experience was I can feel like I can pretty much go into any meeting, and even if the guy is texting or, in the case of one of my mock interviews, playing the guitar and not listening to me, <laughs> um, like you just have to figure out how to get their attention and how to sell yourself, and that's something that the um, the program really tried to instill in us. Also, this is maybe a little bit too in-depth, but try to have a few stories in your back pocket that you can just whip out at any time. Like what Britta just did where she was talking about her script and it just came off so like easy and, and no, it was oh, yeah, like- I practiced that in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, she managed to put in a ton of information in a funny way in a very short amount of time. And that's something that we had to practice a lot in CBS. Like I am not an extrovert. I, talking is not something I do well, which is why I'm a writer, but just because you're not good at something is not an excuse. If you want to succeed in this business, you have to find your flaws and then address them one by one. Um, when, when the, the, one of the first general meetings that my agent sent me on, I sat down, nice guy, loved his production company. He sits down, he goes, so tell me about yourself. And I just started laughing. I was like, what, that's how this guy, what do you, I don't, what do you want to know? <laughs> yeah. And then every meeting I've had thereafter has started with, so tell me about yourself. And from then on, I was like, okay, okay, yeah. I'm ready now. Okay, yeah. I'm ready for that question. It's, I've got like awkward. it's the worst question like, Totally. To yeah. It's like, just tell me about your entire life within two minutes and make it entertaining. Um, and so we developed something called an A story, which is like your biography within a minute, oh my God. Al along with at least five what we call nuggets, which are just anecdotes that we can pull out. Like, oh yeah, that one time I smuggled alcohol into Kuwait, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and so it's just... Is that a real story? Yeah. Can you talk story. about that? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> a hole like, in the wall. Pilot. <laughs> yeah. Get a few drinks with me and I'll go into yeah. it. Um, so what I really took away from that program, though, is that writing is only 50% of your job. The other 50% is reading the room, knowing the hierarchy, knowing how to pitch, how to develop a pitch, how to make people like you enough that they'll accept the pitch, knowing when to shut up, knowing what battles to pick. Because if you're a staff writer, you only have one hill to die on. So you better make it a pretty nice hill. Um, so yeah, those there's because television writing is such a sociable activity. People want to like be in a room with you. They have to want to be in a room with you. If they don't want to be in a room with you, then they're just going to fire you and kick you out of that room. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out a way to be the most awesome version of yourself every day. And if your most awesome is like not as awesome as everyone else is awesome, <laughs> then you have to fake it, which is what I did for a long time. Stuart and I just talked about this last week. You have to just pretend like you're someone else for an hour. Yeah. And then if you're in a room, it's longer, but. Yeah, for like eight hours a day, every day. <laughs> CBS, so how did it work with staffing you? Did, did they help staff you? Yes, so the way these diversity programs work, um, they need to provide incentives to the writer's room to hire you, essentially. So what they do is like, we'll pay for the first 14 weeks of this person's salary, and then you make up the last six weeks for a 20-week contract. Um, and then basically the shows are like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll be interested in reading a few scripts. So then my mentor, Jeannie Mao, uh, she would send out my scripts to any show that she thought I would either be a good fit for or who were interested in seeing me. They read my scripts, got an interview, and was hired. Very cool. Awesome. And um, maybe you could, Britta, you could talk a little bit about the fan culture, because I know also with Riverdale, I imagine there's probably pretty big fan culture building. Yeah. I know it's a new show, but no, I, it's I can intense. imagine there being a really big 
Yeah, it's 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 you know I would I would have I would have been excited uh, for my first TV job no matter what. But the fact that I landed on a show that if if I weren't writing on it, I would probably be obsessed with it. Is like, yeah. <laughs> feels very lucky. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's weird coming from uh, a background of fan culture and. Um, you know, I've I've been obsessed with TV shows for as long as I can remember, like back to back to middle school and like my X Files days when the internet was just like a baby. Um, and now to be on a show where um, I'm kind of on the other side of the curtain and I have all these spoilers that I can't talk about, and you know, I know the behind the scenes drama that uh, I can't talk about. <laughs> um, I can't talk. It's like don't ask me later. I can't. I actually can't talk about. It. We'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just blink twice for yes. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no, it's very, it's very exciting to have like fans uh, uh, tweeting me on on Twitter and saying, you know, which ship they think is their favorite. Uh, you know, there's already ship wars. It's a teen drama on the CW, so some people like Betty and Jughead together. Some people want Betty with Archie. Some people want Betty with Veronica. And there's like every possible iteration of those. And um, and they like telling me about it, and I'm and, and half of me is like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the other half of me is like, I, I can't talk. I, you, you can't take yeah. sides. So, uh, yeah. So it's really weird to see uh, the fandom from the other side. I feel like I'm sort of like peeking out from behind the curtain, and and seeing like the audience where I used to be, and now being on the other side and like finding this new role for myself where. Um, I can't like fangirl out about this one show that ordinarily I would have been, but now I have a different job. Do you feel like being on staff, almost like a weird responsibility to represent that fangirl part of you? Because I imagine that would be a real, a huge asset in a way yeah. to have someone on your staff yeah. that is a fangirl because yeah. you can almost get into the mind of what those people expect. So yeah. is there ever a time when you're like, it would be really cool if that character would do this thing that I know yeah, that no, fangirl would love? Yeah, it's interesting because um, yes, uh, but uh, our showrunner Roberto uh, is like a is like an Archie Comics fanboy. Like he's it's been going on for seventy five years, and he's he's like read all of them. Like he he knows every single character like uh, from from the history of the show. And so there's times where he'll be able to pull this stuff out, and I'm like, hey, I recognize that. Like I can do that same thing with the X Files. Yeah. Um, so that's nice. But yeah, there's times where like I think in my head like. Oh, if I, if I were watching this show as a fan, I'd be shipping this or something like that. But you kind of can't think about it's it's interesting because this is my first job writing for somebody else. Like every other script I've ever written in my life has just been like, what do I want to write? What do I think will help my career? And so I'm just writing based on me, based on the notes on from my writers group or my friends or whatever. But this is the first time where I'm not trying to satisfy Brittle and Dean. I'm trying to satisfy Roberto and Warner Brothers and the CW, and I'm trying to write toward what they want. Um, and if I just uh, came into the room every day and pitched ideas that made it like a Brittle and Dean show, they'd, be, they'd start to be like, okay, relax. Like, if you want to develop so bad, why don't you leave Riverdale and go develop your own show? Like, you kind of have to pitch in the direction of the d way the show's already going, which is easy for me because I really like the show and I'm happy to pitch in that direction. But it's sort of like you, you, you kind of have to take your fan hat off a little bit and, and uh, put on your, your uh, employee hat mm -hmm. when you're in the room. But the, way, the times that it helps a lot is like, we do live tweeting of all the episodes, and uh, there's an episode of Riverdale tonight, Thursday night, uh, <laughs> on the CW. And it, it'll be 8 p.m. here, because we're Central Time. 
Uh, and so the, so the cast and the crew all get together and they live tweet all the episodes every week. Uh, and I would be there, but I'm here. Um, and so it's times like that where I'm like, oh, okay, I know uh, what the, I know I've seen other creators fall into traps online, uh, engaging in with fandom in a certain way or arguing with fandom in a certain way where I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not gonna do that. And I sort of know which potholes to avoid and mm -hmm. if people, want to like if they're like I don't know how to respond to that this then they can like come to me and help and that's where it really helps to like know the language of fandom online because it can get you into trouble more often than not <laughs> if you don't I'm curious <laughs> um, maybe Jessica you could talk a little bit about when you were staffed on the show maybe like what are your what was your first day like I mean I imagine like first day I know when Britta got her Writers Guild card. Oh, yeah. And she posted a picture of it on Facebook. And I was so excited for her because I remember getting that card and be like, oh my God. And I, and I imagine your first day staffed on a show. Was it for both of you just terrifying? Like, oh my God, terrifying. Maybe you yeah, guys can kind of walk us through. It was mainly just panic and fear. Panic and fear, panic yeah. And fear. Um, yeah, it was. It was exhilarating because you think, I've finally made it. I'm through the door. Everything is going to be fine. It's not <laughs> true. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, if you are the person who needs stability in your life, don't do this job. Mm -hmm. um, and really, the first day was all about figuring out who was where in the hierarchy and where I stood in that hierarchy and how I could make myself invaluable to the room. Mm. Because there are a lot of people who want to be staff writers, and there are a lot of really talented people who want to be staff writers. And um, to get into the room, pretty much everyone is a great writer, it's a given. So at that point, you need to have an extra something else that shows that not only did you deserve to get in the writer's room, but you deserve to stay in the writer's room. And so I sort of decided that my main function in the room was to support everyone else. If somebody was, let's say, episode five, the writer didn't, needed to write a beat sheet but didn't want to, I, would did, that, I did that. Another writer's like, oh, I need to do research for this thing. I was like, I'll do that. You know, just figure out how you can help everyone else so that when the time comes, because staff writers are not guaranteed an episode to write. Um, and so when the time comes, if there's an ep extra episode floating around, then hopefully the other writers will be like, oh, yeah, I think, I think Jess can do that because she did the research, she did the beat sheet, she'd help with the outline, she did this, she did that. Um, how, how many staff writers did you guys have? Okay, we technically had two, mm -hmm. but the, this is something else we should also talk about. Yeah. Um, she'd been a staff writer for three seasons. Wow. Yeah, and there was another guy in the room who had been a staff writer for 54 episodes. Wow. Yeah, um, so it's no longer a guarantee that once you're a staff writer and you don't fuck up, mm, excuse me, um, <laughs> when, if you're a staff writer and don't screw up completely, you'll be elevated to story editor and you'll be fine for the rest of your life. Now there's just, <laughs> The rooms are smaller, it's a lot more competitive because seasons are shorter, so yeah. veterans are competing for the same jobs as staff writers. And so a lot of people will just be kept as staff writers for lots of seasons because there isn't enough money to hire them or the shows know, well, you want this job more than I need to give it to you. Could yeah. you back up and just say how many story editors, like, talk about the difference a little bit? The hierarchy. The, the hierarchy. Who, who's in the room? There's the showrunner. Yeah, I, th I feel like I feel like we didn't like in our room. Like we didn't like go around and introduce ourselves. So the first week was trying to figure out like what the hierarchy is because it's a silent hierarchy, but you have yes. to know what it is. <laughs> and we had four staff writers, and it was our first, all four of us, first time, first job ever. Oh, so okay. at least it was like if you screw up, you you just know you, you can't be the worst staff writer. <laughs> there. 
Yeah. No, but you know, everyone's trying to do their best. So we, like we had other people to ask. But then there's above that story editor and above that producer and then I get Hazy co-producer and then the really higher ups. So how many yeah. total were with in your room? We had nine people. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had a, a, a 11, I think, plus our showrunner. Oh, okay. So pretty big rooms. Pretty big, yeah. I yeah, think sometimes there's rooms with like three or four. And writer's okay. assistants. Yep, writer's yeah. assistants, One. 50s, PA. Yeah. But yeah, one of each. When, uh, before, uh, the WGA puts on a boot camp for first-time staff writers, and, uh, and it happened the weekend before I started the show. And so I went in, and the first thing they hit you with, and I forget the exact statistic, but it was high enough to be terrifying. They're like, 50% of all staff writers never get another job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was that same boot camp and it was amazing yeah, was some, how like the excitement into the room morphed into terror like immediately we're like oh. everyone's like i got my first job <laughs> oh my god this is it it's over and so yeah so then there's just like terror in your heart the whole first week you're just like an eager beaver and they're like okay relax yeah. just like be chill mm -hmm. um yeah but yeah no i feel very like it's, uh riverdale has a season two and, I, and i'm coming back so i guess i'm in the half that's at least thank you uh, no, tomorrow is not coming back. Uh, and, but you uh, would be. You, oh, totally. For bringing you back, even though. Totally. Yeah, even though the show doesn't exist, also get paid. Um, and so I'm going into the staffing cycle this season. Oh, okay. So, um, so you're a staff writer, and mm -hmm. but through the season, and you're with nine people in the room. And so in your, you know, I know in different rooms there's different ways people operate. There's a way where it's like the dictator or the showrunner. He says or she says all, and you speak when spoken to. Or you know, could you talk a little bit, both of you guys, a little bit about your experience in the room? Yeah. Sure. Um, well, we had one of our showrunners uh, step down, and another showrunner came in, so there was some transition stuff happening. Um, the showrunner who started the room, she's a lovely person, complete hippie. So it was very much like. Silent hierarchy, like let's just get to know each other, and we just did that for like six weeks. Mm -hmm. Was just getting to know each other, talking to each other. Um, so I just I realized I don't remember the question. <laughs> what was the question? Well, just you can just talk about what it's like in the room and okay. Um, like for room, these guys, what is it like? Tell us what's what like? it like in the room. Uh, our room, and this is not going to be true across the board because I have other staff writer friends who said this was not how they experienced it. Um, my room was very sociable. Mm. Because they were mainly comedy writers and they were very extroverted. They're always like, I got a better joke, I got a better joke, I got a better joke. Um, and so if you weren't a sociable person, then you had a little bit of trouble. But, and like I said before, it's not enough that you can say, oh, I'm not a sociable person, therefore I will not be sociable. Mm -hmm. It's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. You have to participate or you're going to be left out. But. Everyone in the room was really nice. And they know that you're a staff writer and that you don't know anything. Like, that's just a given. Yeah. So if you find people who are nice enough to, they, I mean, it's not like, I will be your mentor today. It's not like that. It's you find someone, you cultivate a relationship with them. If you do enough favors for them and they like you enough, then they will take you under their wing. And they will sort of show you how to navigate the ins and outs of that room. Uh, so that was sort of my experience. Yeah, ours was a ours was a very friendly room as well. I've heard horror stories of like you can't speak unless yeah. spoken to. Yeah, like staff writers don't pitch unless uh, unless they're specifically invited to. Um, ours our room wasn't like that at all. It's just sort of like a 
a family dinner or something yeah. like that. Where everyone's sitting around a room. Uh, you know that like uh, your showrunner is, is like grandpa, and he's he w if he wants to talk, he's gonna talk, and everyone like cedes the floor to him. But everyone else just sort of like chimes in when there's something to say. It was um, it was not. It was only terrifying because of the expectations I put on myself, but not because of the other people. And because of the expectations the WGA boot camp put on me. <laughs> but other than that, no, it was a very friendly. I mean, but even with the friendliness, like I never felt that I couldn't pitch. I also was aware that I shouldn't pitch all the time. Yeah, yeah, I should yeah. only pitch when I have yeah. something fully developed, like we call it fully baked, and I can deliver it well and in a lull. Never talk over an older screenwriter. <laughs> That's a bad idea. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, you have to, deliver it with like sniper-like precision, yeah. whatever your pitch happens to be. Yeah. Otherwise, because uh, I had some other staff writing friends in another show, and they were model staff writers, but there was another staff writer who couldn't shut up. He's, he took up like 50% of the writing time in that room, which is not OK. That's crazy. Yeah, and eventually the showrunner actually called him out in the room and was like, you need to shut up. Wow. So, yeah, you got to be able to read the room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there would definitely be times, especially we had a large room, 10 people, where ideas were flying around, and I've got a great idea that I'm certain is going to like solve all of our problems, and it's like, and you just can't find a time to get it in there. It's, uh, it's, there were times where it felt like high school all over again, because you're like, you just want everyone to think you're cool, and like uh, you have something to contribute, and you're really smart, uh, but you also don't want to like talk over the really cool people who are like the upper level writers, and so you're just waiting for the right time uh, to like deliver your idea that's going to save the episode, and then you deliver it, and they're like, okay, yeah, and then <laughs> you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't the best idea after all. Was in the No Tomorrow, was the creator also the showrunner? So the creator, uh, there were. Okay, so there were three creators. It was Karim Brinkerhoff, who was on American Gothic at the time No Tomorrow was going. Mm -hmm. So that's why they brought in another showrunner at the beginning, uh, along with a writing team. And the writing team, this was their first thing that they'd ever done in television, but um, because they were creators, they were supervising producers. Um, okay, I don't know why. I'm, again, I forgot the question. <laughs> you answered it. Oh, great. Just okay. answer it, wondering if the showrunner was also the creator. Yeah, that's generally how it goes. Um, when the first showrunner, before she stepped down, uh, she was in constant contact with the other creator, Corinne, mm -hmm. just to make sure everyone was on the same page, tonally, everything was fine. But even though she was not the creator of the show, since she's a showrunner, she has that title, we defer to her at all matters. And now that you're preparing for staffing, what does that mean? Are you, are you writing a pilot? Are you writing specs? Um, how yeah. how no, is that? Maybe you could walk through the process. Uh, nobody wants specs anymore. That's generally what I've heard. Except for uh, fellowships. Except for fellowships, yes. <laughs> uh, fellowships is important. So don't to forget, spec. all of you. It's not a waste. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> no, I mean, specs are great. Specs are great practice as well. But also, the fellowships, they all require specs. But um, everyone wants a pilot now, mm -hmm. so you just have to write basically a new pilot every season because mm -hmm. you can't send out the pilot you sent out last staffing season because people have read that. Mm -hmm. Are you are you sending out the pilot you? Because you're going out for staffing this year, yeah. I, I assume. Yeah, and I have a pilot from last year I could use, but I wanted to write another one yeah. that I thought okay. was better. So yeah. I wrote that uh, at the start of my hiatus and does everyone know how staffing this season works and network? No, maybe you could walk us through. Good okay. question. <laughs> Um, so networks pick up the pilot scripts that they want to buy sometime around November, December. But now it's sort of, everything's getting a little bit later, so there are even some in January that are picked up. And then from January, February, March, 
maybe even April, that's when the people who had their pilots picked up, they turned them into actual episodes, like a show. And then after the networks, the execs have watched all of these shot pilots, they decide which ones they actually want to buy to go to season. And that happens in like, and it's called the pickups. And that happens in like May-ish. And around May, that's when staffing season really starts. So before then, there's something called pre-staffing, where you basically go in a whole bunch of meetings, and they're like, hey, so tell me about yourself. Okay, great, now go away. Mm -hmm. And that's it, it's not really in depth. Mm -hmm. um, With the idea being that once they start staffing, they've already met some people. That they've already met some people, yeah. and if you've proved that you're not a psychopath, then you'll probably be fine. But uh, staffing really starts up in May, and that's when everyone is knows what shows have been picked up. They know what shows that they have a connection on, or they think they just really want to be on that show, or they think they have a likelihood of getting on that show, and so everyone is competing for like a handful of spots around that time. But then that's only network. Cable sort of staffs all year round, as does uh, streaming platforms. So the landscape is changing a bit. Mm -hmm. But since network comes first, that's what I'm doing first. I just had a, a meeting with my agent, and he said, congratulations on, on Riverdale getting a second season. I'm so happy that um, you know, you're among the elite few who get another job after their first job. Uh, and by the way, also, um, you have to write another pilot. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, well, I just got this, I'm on this great show and it's doing great. And he's like, yeah, but the biggest mistake people do is they think once you first get your first job that you're just in it now and you're in the machine and the machine will take care of you and it will just keep you employed for the rest of your life. And he's like, it's not that same hustle that you had up until this moment of getting this job, you have to keep having that hustle. So, so write another pilot so that, you know, if God forbid Riverdale gets canceled or whatever, you know, you have something ready to go the, the moment you're free and clear again. And it's like... Yeah, he told me to tell you to write another pilot. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I know he did. <laughs> he did, just now. Yeah, but he's probably texting you right now with questions to ask me. It's on my watch. <laughs> We're at the same agency. Funny LA jokes. <laughs> We're so inside baseball. Um, so you wrote a new pilot, mm -hmm. and so that'll go out to people, mm -hmm. and then your agent will send you out on these meetings. And now, is your time with CBS, the fellowship over, are they still continuing to help you? Or is it like once a fellow, always a fellow? Uh, it's once a fellow, always a fellow if you're doing well. Let's yeah. say that. Um, <laughs> no, they, they help people who they don't think are able to get the help they need. So mm -hmm. I have representation. Mm -hmm. I am low on their priority list. There are other writers in my cohort who never got representation mm -hmm. and who never got that first staff writing job. That's mm -hmm. their priority. Their priority is getting people through the door. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, again, stability is not a thing in this industry. If you want to continue succeeding, you have to keep doing the work. You have to promote yourself. You have to get out there. You have to write new stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it's never a sure thing. Mm -hmm. Do you? Are, is the pilot you're working and sending out, is it in the same vein as your old pilot? Are you trying, yeah. is it an, an hour long or? It's an hour long. I almost always write science fiction. That's just my genre. And um, even though the last show I was on was romantic comedy. Um, <laughs> aside from that, uh, yeah, everything I write is generally in that same sci-fi tone. And I mean, there's a lot of debate about this. Like, oh, I'm a writer and I want to prove I have range. So I'm going to write a 30-minute rom-com and the next thing I'm going to do is an hour-long thriller. Um, my personal opinion is you can do that when you when you become a bit more established. You know, sort of be like, look at all my range. But until then, find your niche and get as good as you can at it. 
basically find your lane. Mm -hmm. Find your lane, stay in it f until you're s established, and then you can go into someone else's lane. Mm -hmm. What about you, Brenda? Do you feel like what you should write next should be that sci-fi movie? Turn it that into that sci-fi movie. Hour? Oh, should I pull it out of the drawer? Um, <laughs> it's it's not bad. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot because Jim wants me to write a pilot. Then um, I don't know uh, what I'm going to write. It's it's sort of like now that I have River, Riverdale on my resume, um, you know, I, I don't want to write you know something that's exactly like Riverdale because they already know I can do that. Um, but I also don't want to write something so crazy different from Riverdale that they're like, who even is this girl? I don't understand her. Like, what is her brand? Hashtag brand. Um, so I kind of have to find the thing that's like pairs with Riverdale, but is, is, I don't know, isn't. Um, and I have some ideas, and 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 I don't know. They'll they'll probably be dramas, uh, and they'll probably involve teenagers. But aside from that, I I don't know what they're going to be. Um, the other thing is uh, a lot of the people in my writers' room. A couple people came from Glee. Uh, somebody came from Degrassi. Um, there's a lot of teen drama. There's some. Uh, uh, teen Wolf, there's a Teen Wolf writer. Um, a lot of teen drama writers in the room. Uh, and something uh, that um, to keep in mind is like there's there's always like one teen drama on the air. Yeah. So, you know, there's always at least one show that you can work on. But there's not usually like 20 teen dramas on the air, you know? So, so it's like you kind of want to, you like want to have your lane, but you want to make sure your lane is like, wide enough that you have a, a bunch of different shows that you could go out for. Um, so if you, if you really only write like one very specific thing, then you might only be a good fit for like one show every year. And like, I know you're probably reading the pilots this year and, and figuring out like which, what are the top five or six that you feel like, oh, I can meet on these shows and like convincingly sell myself for that. Mm -hmm. And so I got to figure out like uh, what I want that brand to be. Um, just kind of moving into like industry stuff. Have you, you know, now that you, you're in, in the oh, industry, so in, in the business, so in. can you talk a little bit just about being women in the industry and like their unexpected things or challenges or that you've noticed? Um, do you feel like there's unexpected challenges or things that you were kind of expecting? Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, um, just about, I'm not making myself no, clear no, about, about no. being a woman in the industry. You can start with the in television and I can start about the even just like yeah, the meetings. Ahead. I do feel like I mean I'm glad you guys brought up meetings and how to present yourself and stuff because I do think it's a little different for women. Yeah, you know, a guy can be like, hey, whatever. <laughs> but I do think no, as a woman, true. you have to be a little more like, hi, I'm on, I'm totally on. And so, do you feel that as a woman? I was I was having challenges. dinner the other day with a like older comedy writer and she had been around since like the 90s sitcoms like heyday um, and she was telling me that when she would go out for meetings she would dress like a writer like mm -hmm. you know you know not amazing and not terrible just <laughs> casual like writer <laughs> outfit yeah exactly <laughs> and um, and she would go out on all the staffing meetings and and this was after she had like crazy good sitcom shows on her resume. Uh, she'd go out for staffing meetings and, um, and just not get the jobs. And her agent finally had to sit her down and be like, OK, uh, I spoke to someone uh, after your meeting. And they said they liked you and they loved your sample. Um, 
it just, you just don't have the look. And she's like, well, look. And she's like, I'm wearing the exact same thing as like all the other dudes wear. And they're like, maybe just try like a heel and like some lipstick. And she's like, that's not me. And I'm laughing now just even imagining my agent telling me to put on heels and lipstick. It would like not go well. Um, she's like, that's not me. And eventually she just kept doing what she was doing and, and got another job uh, with somebody who didn't care that yeah. she was just wearing regular normal clothes. Um, and I think that it, that's sort of like uh, a good example because it's the sort of thing where like you leave a meeting and if you don't get that job, you don't necessarily know why you didn't get that job. And you don't know why if it's like, um, uh, if they didn't get along with you or they didn't like your sample or, or because of some subconscious reason they thought you didn't look the part or you weren't, um, you didn't look friendly or approachable enough. Um, or, you, or they were threatened by you know, how masculine you dressed in your hoodie and sneakers or whatever. You, know? um, you, you have no idea. And so uh, it's, that's, that's the sort of thing. It's like, it's like when you, I don't know. It could I, have you know, nothing to do with you. It could have nothing yeah. to do with you and you don't know. And the, the hardest part is, is, is not knowing. I feel very lucky to be uh, on the Riverdale staff because um, they accept me for who I am. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very gay writer's room. There's a, a, a lot of other gay writers in the room, and so I feel like I'm free to be as gay as I want to be, and, 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 and like everyone's just going to love that. Um, I think it, there, there, I've definitely been in other situations where I'm surrounded by writers, maybe like, like dude comedy writers, where I'm like, this is not my jam, and if I had landed in a room uh, with, with a different climate or a different atmosphere, I think I maybe wouldn't have had as successful a first season as I did on Riverdale. Um, because you just have to be so comfortable and so um, kind of vulnerable when you're pitching ideas and you're putting yourself out there and you're, and you're saying, here's the direction I think the show could go. Here's the direction I want to see these characters go. You're, you're putting a little piece of yourself out there. And so you kind of have to feel comfortable to open yourself up in those situations. And um, a lot of times, if, if I'm like the only gay person in the room or the only woman in the room, um, and you know, I'm white, I don't know what it's like for people of color, and I'm sure it's probably similar, but you, know, you don't feel like you maybe have complete um, comfort to open yourself up like that. So I feel very lucky on Riverdale. Uh, I know lots and lots of other people have not been quite so lucky, and I don't know what the future holds, but I hope that it's getting better. Mm -hmm. How about you? OK, two stories. Um, my writer's room, I was very lucky. It was uh, four female writers, which is the most number of female writers that any of the other women had ever worked with. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, so it was, it was a pretty progressive room in that sense. Um, in terms of sexism in the industry, I once went on a meeting and with two men, and I was dressed kind of like I am now, except I was wearing Oxfords, I think. And so dressed up. Yeah. Dressed up. <laughs> fancy shoes. Yeah, fancy as I shoes. Them. <laughs> basically, basically flat shoes. <laughs> they did not know what to do with me because I wasn't dressed up. And I could tell that one of their sort of fallbacks was whenever a woman walked in to ask her about her clothes, I think, because they started picking apart my outfit. And I was like, <laughs> how is this relevant to what we're talking about? And that meeting did not go well, obviously. Because they're literally like, so, shoes, man. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yes, I do wear them. Um, I have feet. They're necessary. So, I mean, it's not like overt as in like, oh, like unbutton your blouse or something. It's just sometimes they just don't know how to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you don't conform to what they think a woman should dress like. Mm -hmm. That being said, I don't think, in my personal opinion, in my experience, the sexism is not been nearly as 
big an issue as um, being a person of color. Um, I was fortunate that I was not the only person of color in my room. There was another, so we had each other in that way. And the room was pretty, um, was pretty open about things. But there are times when someone will say something and it makes you uncomfortable. And then you have a choice. You can either call them out on it or you can let it go. Mm -hmm. And I almost always let it go yeah. because you call them out on it and you feel that surge of righteousness, like I'm standing up for humanity. Um, and then no one wants you in the writer's room because they don't feel comfortable around you. Or you don't get the next job because someone's like, hey, I'm thinking about hiring this writer. And like, what do you think? Oh, she's really sensitive. Mm, yeah. You know, um, I only ever called out someone on something once, but it was very late in the show and I knew the writer really well. And I knew how to get away with what I was going to say. So I was very strategic about it. And even then, the person I called out was very upset. And I had to apologize after. Yikes. Because I, you, know, you can't make it weird. Your job is literally don't make the room weird. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, I mean, I can't give you a, a guidebook Sorry, for. Sorry, I can't give you a guidebook for how to handle those types of yeah. situations because it's going to vary depending on the room and the people in it and what is being said. Yeah. Um, you just have to use your best judgment. And then, and then, and then, uh, and then get super successful, run your own show, and then you can call out whatever shit exactly. you want. Exactly. Like, you shut yeah. down. You sit down. <laughs> you just exactly. leave the room. You are fired. <laughs> Um, kind of moving on to advice for students, and um, and it's funny because with the writers' room, I think about like workshops. You know, there's always like the one person in class that talks too much, and the one person in class where you're like, not in my classes right now. I'll be <laughs> you know, the, like the one person's like every idea. You're like, oh no. <laughs> and do you feel like those, you know, workshops and just being in school and kind of prepared you for that or do you feel like school didn't prepare you enough I mean what what do you feel like were there surprises that you got to Hollywood and you're like oh my gosh like I never thought saw this coming or like this is just like you know my 380j workshop <laughs> you know with that crazy person I think that the RTF grad program really prepared me on everything that was writing related I there are very many different routes to become a staff writer. And a lot of people generally go through like the assistant route, PA, writer's assistant, and you move your way up. Um, but, and you, and you sort of, you, you learn how to write uh, a bit more slowly than if you are in a grad program and you're in this lovely bubble of creativity and you have the freedom to write what you want and everyone's supporting you. Um, so on the writing front, I think RTF sets you up really well. I think that, like I said earlier, writing is only 50% of the job. Yeah. So whatever your flaws are, or your shortcomings are, or things that you know you have trouble with, don't wait until you're in the industry to try and address them. Address them <laughs> beforehand. Like I, I mean, I'm an introvert, I'm shy, I, people scare me. So I don't like talking to strangers, and that's what every meeting is, talking <laughs> to a stranger. And it wasn't until I got into the CBS program and my mentors took me inside and they're like, you have an issue and you need to take improv classes immediately. Mm. And that is, I knew that I had this issue. Why the hell didn't I address it earlier? Well, I could have taken improv classes here in Austin, but instead I had to take them while I was in the program, while I was doing a million other things that were incredibly stressful. So whatever 
it is that you need work on, <laughs> fix it now when you have the time to do so. When it, not everything is riding on you fixing this thing within yourself or improving yourself in some way. Um, and another piece of advice, uh, I guess, learn Chinese because Chinese market is blowing up, man. <laughs> so, yeah. That'll be easy. Yeah. Just integrate that into the MFA program. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting you said um, um, becoming an extrovert. When, before I moved to Austin, like I'm a pretty extroverted person, but um, before I moved to Austin, I just didn't really like, I didn't really like, I, I didn't see people the way I do now. Uh, well, I, I made it a goal of mine when I moved here um, to, to like make friends, like in a concentrated way. And maybe that sounds weird, but. Um, That's from you. It's your. Yes, but so this friendly. is like learned. Like this, like this, everything I am is like developed carefully <laughs> over time. When you, yeah, when I moved here, I was like, you know, I'm just gonna make friends with everybody, and like not like as a weird networking, like what can you get me thing, but like as a like I want to have a bunch of friends, and I want to like have a big creative community of people who I can help, who can help me, and we can all like come into this industry together. Uh, and so I sort of like made an effort. Um, and, uh, and I recommend that you do that. <laughs> and then when I moved to LA, uh, one of the first things I did was start a Facebook group for uh, U2 students moving to LA. I think you're in the group. I'm, mm -hmm. Lots of your former students are in the group. We'd have monthly meetups. Uh, it's sort of like fizzled a little bit as people's careers are taking off and they kind of have less time. Uh, I think you know if you guys are in a position to be graduating and moving to LA, that's 100%, you should create a Facebook group and invite as many people as you can and just make as many friends as possible because at a certain point, um, you're gonna write a script and uh, you're gonna show it around and, and to people and maybe it's pretty good and maybe that's the script that's gonna get you your first job, but it will never get you a job if it never leaves like your computer desktop. Like <laughs> it has to get out into the world and the way it's gonna get out into the world is like through your network of friends, you read their script, they'll read yours in return. Eventually somebody will read it and be like, oh, I have the perfect person to read this, you know, my uncle's hairdresser's agent. Uh, and, then, and then you got your first job, you know? And so, so expanding your network, but like in an authentic, like real way, not in a like, what can you get me way? Cause people can sniff that out immediately here. But also, especially in LA where like no one has any time and, and they've got like 14 people hounding them to read their scripts at any time. Like you want to like have authentic friends that you like have a base of support, especially because LA is really hard to live. Mm -hmm. It's an expensive town. Uh, it's hard to get around. Um, it's it's um, like sometimes you'll, you'll have a few friends out there, but they'll live across town from you and it's hard to see them. Uh, so you want to make sure that you have like enough social support that even if your writing's going well, even if your career is going well, you don't want to be um, like lonely. You know, you don't want to be like uh, in a place where emotionally you don't like the city because you need to you need to be able to like take care of the emotional side of yourself as well as the like writing side of yourself. So on that note, I would also say, especially if you're already here and it's a lot cheaper. Go to therapy. <laughs> You're like, you gotta work on yourself. You gotta like address your issues. Yeah, like go to therapy and start that process now. You're gonna get so many story ideas in therapy. I swear, your scripts are gonna get better. You're gonna be happier. It's all gonna be better. I have to say, when I first came to Austin, I was really unsure about this whole thing. And Britta, is, she's one of the students who was assigned to like, 
show me around. Yeah, I wasn't even a screenwriter. And I was just I like, yeah, I remember oh, you on. were walking nearby <laughs> and you were so warm and lovely that I remember like getting back and calling my husband and being like, everyone is so nice. Oh God, it's my it. fault, it's my so, fault. I even so. remember you being like, oh, should I move to Austin? I was like, it's okay, I don't know. I'm moving to LA right after this. I don't know if you should move here. You're like, I think I'm gonna move here. I'm like, okay, if you want to. <laughs> but you're one of the reasons, okay. thank you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Do you have um, you know advice for everybody making the transition? I mean, when you move to LA, when you guys moved there, you neither of you knew exactly what you're doing. You knew you were going to intern at Pillar Segan. Yeah, but after that, that summer, I had no idea. What you didn't know, and we'd meet, and you're like, I don't know. And then, um, but when you were there, I mean, did you read the trades? Did you like try to keep up with the industry? I mean, how how did you kind of prepare yourself to be in it when you were moving there and while you were there. I mean, because you always have people, yeah. it's like they're in Starbucks in the old days when uh -huh. back in my day, there everyone's reading variety. But do you guys keep up with that stuff? Yeah, they have did an app you, now. Did yeah. you, yeah. Uh, they do? Yeah. Um, but when you first went there, were you following things, trying to see like who's in the industry, who do I need to meet with? Yeah. You could talk about like that transition and how aggressive you were with the hustle. Because you guys hustle. Yeah. And that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky because you gotta, um, when you first get out there, the like most important thing that you have to do is like have a job that makes money so you can make rent because like rent is ridiculously high. And so you gotta like, that's number one. And then once you got that train going, then you're like working on your scripts and you gotta find the way that, um, that you, you gotta find a way that you can balance like writing scripts with whatever job that you have that's making you money. Uh, with like some sort of social life so you're not like a sad, miserable hermit. And that's like three different jobs that's really challenging to juggle all of those. I don't know if you found that challenging, but I certainly did. Yeah, so <laughs> when I, after my internship, I got a terrible job in an auction house. And um, so that was a full-time thing. I, and yes, I read Variety, I read Deadline, I read Hollywood Reporter, but I never read them with the expectation of like, oh yeah, this is an important guy to know and I'm gonna meet him because I just always assume I'm never gonna meet this guy because I don't know anyone in the industry. <laughs> but I found it a lot more interesting to read stuff on like what was being bought. So what pilots were being bought, what movies were being bought, because there are trends. If you, and if you read the system well enough, maybe you can anticipate the trend mm -hmm. and write something that will be the next trend. Like, oh, I see it's going this way, so I'm gonna write this script. Um, or like there were four time travel shows last year, so maybe don't, don't write, write a time, a time travel, travel show. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. Um, I guess for me the most yeah. So for me the most important thing was uh, figuring out what the trends were, and then just forcing my, not forcing but making myself write every day. Yeah. I mean when you're in school you have deadlines. You have if you don't turn in your paper you'll get an F, and then your parents will get mad at you. Um, <laughs> When you're out of school, it's really, if you don't finish this pilot, the only person who is accountable is yourself. And if you don't finish the pilot, then you won't make the staffing season. You won't get an agent. You won't, you know, all the things that are necessary. And it seems so impossible to like actually break in and actually get an agent that you're like, wow, does it matter if I finish yeah. this? Like, is this pilot really gonna be the pilot that gets me a job? That, it's not urgent. And, yeah, exactly, it could happen at any yeah. time. But like, it could. And so you gotta like find that motivation inside yourself to like, uh, to either stay up every night and like work or get up in the morning and work or, or do or like not binge that Netflix series and work and like find 
find the like whatever that you need to like actually do the writing because you're not going to get a job unless you have the scripts. Exactly. Yeah, you, you, there has to be a certain level of discipline and personal commitment to this because it's hard because you, you never know if you're actually going to make it. You're like, I'm going to be spending like six months of my life on this thing. I don't know if it's going anywhere. Yeah. But you just have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I will have one final question after. Is it about be... who our favorite screenwriting professor was? <laughs> we, we don't have to embarrass anybody. <laughs> um, but first, we'll look at some questions from the audience. Yeah, no, yeah, no one helps. No, yeah, no, one, no helps one will you. help you. <laughs> no one will help it's you. the Wild West. Um, I actually <laughs> got representation through the CBS program. They wow. brought in. So you did have help. I did. <laughs> they they bring in people to talk to you, and then we do like a round robin thing, and you sort of sell yourself, and then someone liked me, and they're like, okay, we'd like to sign you. So that was my experience. But for most people I know, they got it through somebody else they knew. Like yeah, someone it's, else. It's, it's almost always through somebody yeah. that you know. There's like. You can like query agents. I literally don't know anyone who's ever gotten an agent from querying. It's always been through like a recommendation from somebody, or sometimes if you win a contest. When I started, when Ship It started winning contests, I had a few agents and managers reach out to me, um, and they would ask for the script, and then I would never hear back from them. I'd be like, oh, okay, so they're not into gay fan fiction. That's fine. Uh, or or they'd ask for the script, and then they want to meet with me, and then I'd never hear back from them. I'd be like, okay, so they're. They're not into me, that's fine. Um, and then eventually, somebody read it. Uh, uh, and the, uh, my current agent's assistant read it. She liked it. We met up, had drinks. I love her. She's like one of my best friends now. And um, uh, she's like, OK, I'm going to force my boss to read this, and I'm going to hound him until he reads it. Uh, and so he read it eventually. And I honestly think it was luck. I think he had read it like right at the same time that somebody was like, hey, do you have any scripts about like Comic-Con culture, and he's like, I just read one last night, I guess this girl, maybe. <laughs> so it was like a lot of luck, and then like having yeah. a friend on my side to like badger him into it. And now, of course, we're, we're good friends, my agent and I. But well, he, um, at I the think time, he likes me more, because uh, he was like, I just signed someone from Austin, and he's like, Brit, I'm like, what? <laughs> and then when he found out how much I loved you, he was like, all of a sudden, he started calling me more. So it could have been, it could have been so much well, thank easier. You, you could have just you. I know. helped me I could have gotten credit for that. Yeah, one. yeah, no, but I did it all myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's, it's helping me. <laughs> yeah, so it's tricky. And everyone I know who's gotten an agent or a manager has gotten it a different way. But, but almost always, it's from showing it to someone who's like, you know what, I like this. I'm going to show it to my manager, or I'm going to show it to my friend who is an assistant to a manager. Yeah, that's actually a piece of advice I really want to impart to you. Make friends with the assistants, the support staff, the scripties, the PAs. Yeah. Because, well, if they have a lot of practical knowledge about how the industry works. And if they like you, they will help you out. But also, they are the best gossip machine in yeah. LA. Yeah, they know everything. They know everything. It's yeah. amazing. They know and they also have the power to like end you. Yeah, they really do. By just like not telling their boss that you exist. And yeah. you're like, uh -huh. why but isn't he responding to me? But if they do like you, they will like 
like literally slip your script to the top of the pile yeah. for someone to read. Well, it makes totally. them look good. Yeah, yeah, totally. So your agent's assistant now looks yeah. amazing. But go, that, how to make friends with assistants? Just make a lot of friends, and eventually they'll become assistants, and eventually <laughs> yeah. they'll get your job on the, yeah. just make friends. There's also, there's also a massive group. is just to be nice. There's yeah. also like a massive Facebook group. Like every yeah. assistant in LA is part of this Facebook group, yeah. and anyone can join. They have like weekly meetings or something. So just yeah. show up to one of those meetings. And, yeah, show up. Yeah. Cool. You have a question? Hi. Um, I have a couple quick questions for Britta, and they're kind of related. Um, first of all, I'm loving Riverdale, and part of that is because of the heavy um, style about it. So I'm wondering, how much freedom do you get within that style? Because um, mm -hmm. I know it's a very uh, essential part to the show. And also, you talked a lot about sort of Twitter and fan engagement. Uh, I was wondering, have there been any cases with when um, the buzz you're seeing on Twitter has kind of influenced uh, what's being written? Um, uh, interesting questions. Uh, I'll, I'll answer the second one first because I remember it. Uh, <laughs> we wrote we wrote the whole first season. Uh, it's a, it aired in mid season, so it started airing in January. Uh, we finished uh, production in January, so we wrote the whole first season before it started airing, which was uh, very exciting. We're writing in a bubble, not knowing what people would like and not like, and now we're watching it, those episodes play out uh, and and seeing people like screaming or. or in joy or rage, uh, depending on who they ship, uh, based on those episodes. So um, next season will probably be different. I'm sure it will be different, because we will have experienced all of everyone's reactions to season one. Uh, plus, uh, I, we don't know when we're premiering, but I, it looks like it might be in the fall, but we don't know. Uh, but if it is in the fall, uh, then we'll probably be like uh, receiving people's reactions to season two as we're writing season two. And so that'll be interesting. I don't know what that's like because I've never done it before, but um, I don't think it'll affect that much. I mean, we've never sat around in the room and been like, the fans like this, so maybe we should do that. Or the fans like this, so maybe we should not do that. I think we'll probably just try to write a good show. And, that, and I feel like there's fans who like everything and fans who hate everything, and so it's impossible to sort of please anyone but ourselves. Um, and then the first question is about the Riverdale style. So Riverdale is a teen drama, but there's a murder mystery element to it, and it's very heightened, and uh, a lot of like pops of color and musical stuff and slow motion and uh, pop culture references, and it's like funny and dramatic and scary, and it's a lot of different things, and that's a lot of fun because one minute you could be writing a scene where it's like a really dramatic scene between sisters and they're talking about their emotions and then the next moment you're writing a scene and it's a dance-off between two characters who uh, hate each other and they're going to dance to see who wins. <laughs> uh, uh, that's in my episode airing April 13th on the CW, <laughs> Thursday night today. <laughs> um, uh, so that's just a lot of fun. We have a really collaborative room, so, uh, so you're really not off on your own trying to figure this stuff out. We, we work out all the outlines together, and by the time it's time to write your episode, you're working off of a 15-page document uh, that's very detailed. You've already pitched the entire episode to the room twice, gotten notes back from the network and the uh, studio, so you really know the episode before you're writing it. So thankfully, we're not like off in the weeds or anything like that, because that would be really scary. It's a, it's a challenging show to write. Um, so I was just wondering, because you were talking about um, how you have to like write pilots for like every season, and like, I guess like how serious you, no, not that you just don't take it seriously, but like, do you ever write a pilot thinking like, oh, they might actually pick this up, or is it just like a step that you do to like keep in good with the network, and like what would happen yeah. if like you wrote some random pilot and then they decided to pick it up, like would you become the showrunner, like how does all that, so scary. 
Like, like, because I guess, like, I thought that, like, oh, everybody just writes these shows that they're, like, 100% invested in, and I guess now I'm getting the impression it's more like you're just writing to write in a way to, like, to, like, flex your muscles. Yeah, it feels like the stakes are on now because every other time I've written a script, it's just been, like, a writing sample. Like, you never think, like, oh, I'm going to actually, this is actually going to get made. But now it's like you write a pilot. Like, your pilot right now is probably a writing sample in order to get your next staff writing job. But maybe someone's like, no, no, this is it, Jess. We're going to make this. And then, (laughs) that's scary. (laughs) That's real. That's real. What you're saying is possible, right? That um, maybe I write a fantastic fucking sample and I Netflix, someone at Netflix reads it and like, we're going to make this show. That's um, not common. Possibly, I mean, also because I'm just a staff writer. They want someone who has a bit more experience to actually run a show. That being said, you should never just write a writing sample to just write a writing sample because that is the surest way to not get hired for anything. Because there's so many people who are writing uh, pilots. They're, I mean, the people who are reading these pilots and are hiring, they've got hundreds of scripts to read. So your script has to be as good as, like, I'm going to sell this motherfucker. Sorry, keep cursing. Um, <laughs> like, I'm she going. She had such a party mouth. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Like, you, you have to write like you're going to sell it but with the expectation that it's probably only going to be a sample. But if you did sell it, if the like unthinkable happens and, and Netflix is like, we want to make this a series immediately, what they would probably do is pair you up with a very experienced yes. uh, uh, executive produ- or producer. Which is what happened in No Tomorrow. Which is what happened in No Tomorrow. Yeah. And, then, and then the two of you w- would uh, find some sort of collaboration and, and run the show together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that doesn't happen that often, but occasionally. So my question is, um, I know you, you all work in network and it may work differently, but as someone who would want to be like, who wants, who wants to be a producer eventually, like what qualities or what like things do you see that you would like to work with in a producer? Um, even when, and I don't know if they come and pitch to you or, or like you go through agents, but what, how does that dynamic flow and what do you like to see in that? When you say producer, do you mean like the producer works at um, like a production company or like an executive yeah, producer? Yeah, like someone or someone with an idea, and they and they have an idea for you, or you have an and they approach you and say, "Hey, like, I have this idea. What what makes you like turned on about the idea? You you could say, or like that makes you want to work with them." Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been in a position where people are pitching me ideas yet. I mean, someday, but uh, but uh, so far I've had to be an idea generator. Um, I, I think uh, if someone came to me and was like, I read this article, it just screams Brita, uh, I want you to read it and tell me what you think, uh, then uh, maybe I would write a pilot and develop it with that production company or something like that. But it would have to be something that I was like, oh, okay, this is something that I can do really well. This is something that I know that, um, I, I, know, I know my voice better than anyone else and I would have to know that I could write this script well or I could write this idea really well. That's what I'm looking for, which is kind of intangible, but, um, but, I, but I know me, so I just have to feel it. Yeah, I don't know if this answers your question, um, but I think in order to do what you, what you seem to want to do, it, that takes um, time and experience. So you have to work your way up to a position where you are versatile enough in a lot of areas to you know, work your way up within the company or whatever, wherever you happen to be, and people trust you enough that they're willing to give you a bunch of money to develop this idea. So I don't think there's any sure, like, 
step one, step two. But yeah. Probably pretty, pretty similar to your advice about just being in a human and in a room and so many people want to work with. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I know in the last few years we've seen a lot of movie people enter the TV business, whether it's shows like The OA or Stranger Things, people who are traditionally filmmakers going into TV because it's become more lucrative. Can you talk about the overlap with people who work in film and now working in TV? Or Britta, I know you were an MFA production student, so can you talk about like yeah. whether they're so, so separate or if they're more yeah. interconnected maybe? Yeah, they're very connected now. I feel like a lot of people working in TV have movies in development. A lot of times uh, the, film, film, the film situation right now is really tricky. It's hard to make a feature film unless it's like super low budget indie or it's like, Jurassic World 8, you know, it, there's like <laughs> nothing, it's really hard to make something in the middle. And those sorts of like character driven stories that maybe used to be like a $30 million movie, uh, now those kinds of stories are all being told on TV now. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of uh, film writers moving over to TV. But a lot of times those, um, those, those uh, uh, writing staffs only have like two or three people in it. And so you'll get a writing staff that has like three, like, you know, two feature writers and a playwright in it, um, you know, and, and nobody has TV writing experience, um, but they're writing like a little mini movie for their, their limited episode series or something like that. So there's just a lot of different kinds of writers rooms. And I think we both came from network writers rooms that have a very specific type, but especially on streaming and cable, and you're going to see a lot of different types of rooms out there. Um, I think we have time for one more question really quick, and then we'll, sorry, he's Afterwards, you can hound her. <laughs> yes. Hi. Uh, this is directed more towards Jessica. Uh, so you spoke a lot about being a minority in the in the industry, and I know that that's a big deal for uh, us. Um, and uh, well, you also mentioned that the Chinese market is booming. But well, my question is, uh, do you believe that this systematic disadvantage that uh, we have? is slowly turning into a systematic advantage in, t in this industry? And where do you see it going? That's a really good question. <laughs> Thank you. OK. Um, it is a systematic disadvantage. That being said, I would never have gotten a staff writing job if I wasn't a woman of color. Because I would never have gotten to the CBS program, and then CBS would never have gotten me staffed in No Tomorrow. Well, so, you, you might have, but you got this job because you're a woman. Yes, because I'm, but I, basically, I, I leapfrogged over a bunch of steps that a lot of people traditionally have to take in order to get a staff writing job. And I think a lot of that, I mean, yes, I, I'm a pretty good writer, but I'm also a woman of color, and that really helped. That being said, that only happens for like 5% of the people of color. The other 95%, they don't get to leapfrog. In fact, they have several added barriers to their progress. In terms of it slowly being turned, um, it's, it really depends on, on where you're looking. So network, I think, is a little bit more static. And that change is very slow, because it's a huge behem they're huge behemoths, CBS, NBC. Uh, other places tend to be a bit more versatile in terms of adapting to the present PC nature of hire people of color, hire women. Um, that being said, I, was, I went to a mixer party 
and uh, I was introduced to an executive at a production company. And uh, he's like, so tell me about yourself, the worst question in the world. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that I wrote science fiction. He's like, oh, thank God. Do you have a job right now? Because I specifically need a woman of color to write a science fiction show for three <laughs> shows right now. He had never read anything I'd written. I could have been a shitty, shitty writer. He didn't care. He's like, you literally fulfill my quota. And I'm going to stuff you into this room. So I mean, I guess, is, is that an advantage? I mean, yeah, you get in the door, but you're not, you don't get in based off of merit. You're, you're in that room, and you have to prove your worth 10 times more than a lot of other people in that room, because people automatically assume you're the diversity hire, and that you're basically, it's affirmative action. You don't actually deserve. Like, they think you don't deserve to be there. You're not as good as everyone else. Like, I remember one of my friends who's also diversity hire, he was like a few weeks, uh, like a month or two into his room, the writer's assistant was laughing at a joke he told about an episode that he was co-writing, and she said, huh, you're actually a really good writer. I did not expect that out of you. Oh. You know, and so this is, and she didn't think there was anything wrong with saying that. You know, this, I'm not sure if that's an answer to your question. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. I also feel like, yeah, the reason that guy needed to fulfill that quota is because there's not enough women of color writing in TV as it is. Like, hopefully someday he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to like pick up people at the party because there's like so many in the industry and there's like a million to pick from. I, I mean, I think there are actually a lot of them. They just don't have representation. They don't have the doors. Like, to get into that mixer, I needed to know a couple people to get into that mixer. And the only reason I knew a couple people was because I had representation. You know, so like I know several women of color, uh, great television writers. They've never gotten a job because they don't have all the ins you need to get in. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time, but that question really quick that you're all anticipating. Mm -hmm. um, what are you watching now? Alberta mm -hmm. oh. Not right now. <laughs> <laughs> Love it or list it. Um, Property Brothers, okay. Uh, okay, well, Britta, we were talking about this earlier, and Britta made a really good point, which is when you're writing for television, you don't have time to watch television. I know, it's crazy. Because, like, I would be in the office at, like, 7.38, and I would get home at, like, 10. So you don't, you don't really, you know, have time to watch. That being said, the last, the last show I watched was The OA on Netflix. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm watching Transparent right now. Um, I was a season behind, but I'm working on it. <laughs> good. Well, thank you so much. I'm so proud of both of you. Excited to see Thanks you Thanks for having go. us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to hear past speakers, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with the assistance of Tim Piper and Laura Felshow and our videographer, Eric Apollo. The program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather, and we hope you join us next time for another Media Industry Conversation. <laughs> <laughs>